Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the blowout 20th episode of the Believe Knicks podcast. Matthew Miranda, your co host, along with Stacey Patton. Last time we spoke to you, the Knicks were headed into a four game stretch against Washington, Utah, Atlanta, and Charlotte. It was a stretch that we thought if the season maybe was going to have any more relevance as far as the play-in, they would have to make some noise. They beat Washington, figured they, they could. Lost to Utah, figured they would. Um, and then without Julius Randle, fell in Atlanta, and then rebounded tonight um, to beat the Hornets. That's where we are now as far as you know the standings with nine games to go. But there's a lot more to talk about than uh, a non- likely playoff any like they're not gonna make it so let's talk about other things that there's actually more intrigue and drama about um Stacey I want to start by asking you a baseball question actually do you remember used to be a Toronto Blue Jay and then eventually a great New York Met by the name of John Olerud I remember him as a Yankee so maybe I'm oh, too young that's great he did play for the Yankees late I'm I'm very young, but that's when I got to baseball. So I am not. So John Olerud, I remember um, when he was a Blue Jay, there was a year that he hit, I think, like 363. And I loved him because he had this very quiet, like he had a great eye and a quiet swing. It was a great defensive first baseman. And he wore a helmet in the field because he had had some, um, like some brain injury when he was younger, I think. And he had to wear like a helmet to be. So he always stood out. He was always wearing a helmet everywhere. And I remember Olerud came to the Mets, and I was very excited because they had this guy who hit 360, like, awesome. And there was a big struggle when Olerud first came to the Mets because the Mets wanted him to swing for power um, and change his stroke and change his approach to hitting. And it always bothered me that you brought in a guy who he, he obviously wasn't going to hit 360 every year, but he was a great hitter, and he had a tremendous eye. And why would you... You know, if it's working, why mess with it? Like, just accept it for what it is. I thought of John Olerud when I thought about um, what's happening with the Knicks right now, which, despite the loss in Atlanta, I think there have been um, some real positives with the young players stepping up, stepping up in minutes, stepping up in their roles. Um, And I was going to ask if you think, like, do you think Tom Thibodeau is learning anything from what's going on here? But I don't think that's a question you can answer. And um, I think it's more interesting to consider, are we seeing without Randall there the blueprint for a formula that you feel better about going forward maybe than the, the usual Randall-centric formula, at least that we see on offense? And as I yeah. asked that, Obi Toppin finished the night. This is, I, I, I tweeted this last night. Obi Toppin, coming into this game, had played 124 games in his career and had played 24 minutes or more only four times. Tonight he played 40 minutes. He had 18, 11, and six assists. I only saw the fourth quarter, so I don't know um, what Obi's game was like, but, I mean, that was a nice performance, it looked like. Yeah, I mean, I think... Overall, with the Randall thing, it's two games, right? But they played two games without ostensibly their best player. 
and um, and they went one and one against two teams that are in their range, right? The Hawks and the Hornets are separated by one game. The Hornets are actually better than the Hawks by record. Um, they're both pretty similar, um, and the games went pretty similar. They both have dynamic point guards. I, I, I'm not saying Lamelo Ball is as good as Trey Young. They have very dynamic point guards that both had great games against the Knicks. The mellow ball went off. Um, I'm happy to talk about why the common threads about those two things. And I think a lot of that has to do with, I'm not going to say it, but it rhymes with Schmalik Schmerk's point guard. Um, playing all of his minutes next to Schmevin Schmornier also on there. Um, not to say that those guys shouldn't play, but um, the people whose names rhyme with that probably shouldn't play together when you're switching as much. But um, yeah, to get to get back to Obi Toppin, um, I think it's very his his flaws are very obvious. Um, Nick's muse, which I have a suspicion about who that I, that is, um, and I haven't. Is this breaking news down. on the Believe Knicks podcast? Are you going to name names tonight? <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but Knicks Muse, the stats Muse answer to the Knicks Muse, the Knicks put her answer to stats Muse, um, tweeted out that Obi has, I think it was like minimum of 100 attempts this year, lowest three point percentage in the league. So he can't shoot. And I know people want to say he's not used the right way or whatever, but his lack of three-point shooting, given who he is, is a problem. Like, let's not understate that, right? He has to shoot better. But the energy, but how well he does everything else. Um, th- there's two big flaws, right? He in man-to-man defense, he's not great because he doesn't have great lateral agility, and he's not a good shooter but he does everything else in a way that helps the Knicks so much. He runs the floor with a passion. And when he plays with quickly, especially, but also RJ Barrett, um, last year, Derek Rose. Uh, but when he plays with guys that want to push the ball, get out in transition. And to be, to an extent, Evan Fournier, like, you know, Evan Fournier has caught a lot of flack, but Evan Fournier has made an effort to find him and Mitch even even without like some motion or whatever, just with a post mismatch, Evan Fournier will dump that to Mitch. Barrett does that too. Um, Obius and like yeah, like I mean, there's so many times in the half court where you just see Obi get the ball, and for a normal player, you're like, that's just a big getting the ball at the three point line, and somehow he turns that into a layup. And when he gets a layup, he is 60, 70. He's been close to 70% at the rim there, right? Um, that's that's not something you can just discount, you know? It, it doesn't come the way you might want. It doesn't come out of him ISOing. It doesn't come out of him rubbing pick and roll. It doesn't come the way Julius Randle might get those layup pen, attempts, but he gets them a whole lot uh, out of situations you wouldn't expect him to, right? And that's and when you're talking about, we can look at the stats about what are they shooting at the rim, what are the percent percentage assisted but the way he gets his shots are not how you expect people to get them get those shots and 
not situations in which you would expect him to be productive, and he turns those situations into 67% attempts at the rim. That's important. Um, and he doesn't do it without... He doesn't do it by hijacking the offense. Um, I understand, you know, it, there's been a lot of talk about Tibbs putting Taj in for him against the Hawks, right? We can talk about that. But Taj closed the game for the last 15 minutes of the Hawks. So first of all, like, it's a very difficult situation where you're evaluating Tom Thibodeau and talking about Taj Gibson because Taj Gibson is awesome. Like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you've watched a lo- hell of a lot of the tough Nick seems in the 90s, I think, with more ability to gra- glean stuff from that than I was at that age. But, um, but you know, he, um, he, Taj has that, right? Taj has that feel of a 90s Nick, but he played the last 15 minutes against Atlanta and Atlanta had a couple of switches on him late and it wasn't helped by the fact that Alec Burks was the guard on Trey. So he just gave up the switch very easily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was one where Taj fell down, right? And we had to hear Greg Anthony orgasm himself over, Oh my God, look at Trey young. He's 43 points. But when Trey young was out there against, you know, not, getting the switch on Todd Gibson or Deuce McBride, he wasn't doing that. Um, not to say that Todd would, or Trey wouldn't have embarrassed Deuce as well, because he is a really good player, but the Knicks made it easy for him. So with, um, so my short answer on the OB versus Todd thing is it's very clear. He helps the team, but I don't think Todd, uh, I don't think Tibbs knows how to use him to do that properly. I don't know that anyone does. I don't know that Nick's Twitter does either, right? Because he is a little bit of a complicated player. He is. But he adds a lot of value. Uh, he runs the floor. He is a beast on the glass. Uh, he can cre- he can create rim opportunities out of nothing. And he makes things easier for guys like... Like, if your whole ar- argument is that we don't have a point guard, he makes that less of an issue because of how well he distracts the defense away from those guards, right? So the fact that quickly can't attack the rim is suddenly less of an issue when OB is out there. The the fact that RJ can't hit pull-up threes is less of an issue when OB is out there and he's pulling away that help. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with OB. And so, like, he needs more minutes, but it's also tough to figure out where they come from. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, Tom Piccolo tweeted... Um, I think after the Atlanta game, um, Tom Piccolo. By the way, I, I I think Tom Piccolo sounds a little bit like Tom Thibodeau, so it can be a little bit confusing. <laughs> Tom Piccolo is probably a much better year than Tom Thibodeau is. Uh, he's a great a great anal- great analyst of absolutely um, yeah. Tom Piccolo, follow him if you're not. By the way, yeah. But, yeah. So he had a clip of a play where uh, Jericho Sims, based, Jericho Sims, basically kind of back screened um maybe it was capella as barrett was driving down the lane and it was an example of a way that a player who doesn't have shooting range is still able to help you know space the floor if you think of the you know if you think of the concept in more than one way it doesn't just have to be shooting there's lots of ways you can space the floor there's um 
that to me is kind of similar to what you're saying about Toppin in that Toppin creates things that we know are good, but he creates them in ways that I think we're not used to seeing. Um, and I think, I think Toppin could be the kind of player who's like a really good, like on a good team, if he can just like go out there and play and just do the things that he's good at, I think he could be like really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And like, and, and the effort is never a question. It's really like, like in, in, against the, um, against the, the against the Hawks. Um, I like a lot of people were upset that he didn't, he played a certain amount of minutes and Taj played more. I actually did understand that one, because as I mentioned, if I didn't make this clear, like Taj is a plus, like I don't want Taj to be gone. I want him on this team to fill in some gaps that everyone in this, all of those bigs, including by the way, Mitchell Robinson have, he's a very smart player. He's shown slowly, but surely an ability to even hit the corner three. He can hit some jump shots, Mm -hmm. which makes life easier on quickly and um, Burks and all the other guards. Um, But, you know, so I, I, I understood why top it. And like, there are, Toppin, when he got switched on to Trey Young, was, I would say, even worse than Taj because he couldn't handle that. Um, he couldn't handle getting switched on to Bo- Bogdan Bo- Bogdanovich, but he's good on a team scheme. Like, he knows where to be. He's a smart player. He's an athletic player who, if he's like, if he is in the right spot and has to just, all he has to do is jump, he will jump. And if all he has to do is be in the right spot, he's smart enough to do that. What he has, what he lacks, is the place, the times when it's very unclear what the right spot to be in is, and it's just a question of being a freak, right? Which guys like Grimes, Reddish, Reddish is better. Like, do I think Reddish is a better defender than Obi? Not necessarily, but Reddish is better at handling certain situations that um, Obi isn't, right? Um, the reddish can handle a one-on-one in a way that Obi can't. Um, but I think he's overall a plus, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's also, it comes down to, and this is, this is the tough thing, but we've always heard, like, I think the way that Nick's reporters, even someone like Ian Begley, who's pretty balanced, will phrase it as like the choices between winning games and playing vets. And Matt, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Cause I think you've seen a lot more in X basketball than I have. Do you think that's really the choice? Like, do you think that playing the vets this year, like in some of the situations we've played them, like playing Alec Burks at point guard versus quick, quickly played 21 minutes and didn't close the game tonight. That worked out, but he was playing really well. He had quickly had seven assists despite quote unquote, not being a point guard in 21 minutes. Um, I mean, do you think that's really where we're at? Because I, my, my take is that I think the Knicks could have won some more games playing guys like quickly playing Quinn Grimes in games where Evan Forney was clearly outmatched on defense. Right. Or, you know, if it's, if it's not necessarily benching Fournier, it's not playing Fournier and Burks and Kemba Walker together or even Fournier and Burks together because Burks is actually a good defender that like, like I'll put this out there. I'll, like I've 
been very vocal about not wanting Alec Burks at point guard, but I think a team that plays Alec Burks 30 minutes a game is not a bad team. But if he's the if he's guarding the point of attack and initiating the offense at 30 minutes, that's a different story than if he's playing 30 minutes next to RJ and next to playing quick next playing quickly or next to playing deuce, you know. I often feel now like people jump the gun on like as I, I feel a lot of times now that people want to start a young player like as soon as they show like any ability um, because I think people think about the sport in a more corporate way and so our minds are more geared towards like oh here's a here's a chance to optimize in, in efficiency and but a new shiny thing too also yeah yeah I, that, that's always been there but now I think when you add the, the analytic just yeah, it's like system. marginal advantages that are not long term. Yeah, and for this, and I think for this fan base in particular, like we're looking for, we're always looking. If our Messiah isn't going to be a person, maybe maybe it can be a statistic. Like we need something. Having said that, there's no one who has followed the 2022 Knicks can, with a straight face, say that the choice is either play the vets and compete or develop the youngsters and lose because for the most part this season, the youngsters have played better. Anyone who's watched the team has seen that. How much do you think that is? So like, do you think it really is just because the youngsters only play against the vets or, or sorry, the youngsters only play against the bench, not the vets, the vet bench. No. Um, because you think it's just without, even controlling for that, they've just been better. Because yeah, I agree I think, with you, but I want you to still man that case. So yeah, because I think I so, the hard so, work. I really do believe that there have been so many instances this season of we we just saw it in the game against um I think it was Utah, where the bench makes the run in the second half. The bench is, is in the fourth quarter bringing the team back or taking the lead. They're not doing that against the other team scrubs. Like they're often doing it against the other team. It's the fourth. Like they have their best players in there, and one of those games where Thibodeau either rides the bench all the way through, or like he did in that game, um, goes back to to Randall and other starters like late. You might wait till there's like three minutes left or something. Um, there's been a number of those games this year, and the Knicks starters. As a, you know, just as a five-man solution, they have not solved anything this season. Like that, the the main group of either Kemba and Fournier, or um, Burks and Four, however you want to do that, and then Mitch and Randall and Barrett. Like that has not worked. It has what would you say to people? Quarters. It hasn't worked in third quarters. It hasn't worked in fourth quarters. What would you say to people that say? I mean, I think that. Because I do agree with you, but the steel man of that argument is that the Knicks are good enough, are deep enough. They have a very deep team, so their bench is better than other teams. People say I hear that. I hear that all the time. But the bench is because they don't have the top ten talent. The bench, the the starters are always going to lose, and there's no way to remedy remedy that. Right? Like the bench is always going to win because the Knicks just have ten deep where other teams don't. And the Knicks also lack the top end talents, so they're always going to lose. Like, what would you say to that? 
I would say with this team, something that's, I think maybe it's, I'm, it's different with other teams, but in the Knicks case, I think like this is reality. It's, there are a lot of benches that are, but like the Knicks don't have the best bench in the league. The Knicks don't have this astonishing, like, you know, 89 Pistons bench for the ages that like, like they have a good bench. They have an especially good bench because on this team, they carry more of the, they have carried more of the weight of success than I think. I mean, we, I think we would agree most seasons that we have watched the Knicks. Good and, they, and they even have Derrick Rose for most of it, right? Like, that was the easy response last year that Rose makes the bench that great, but yeah. that hasn't been the case this year, right? Rose was gone. Um, Kemba was never really a contributor on the bench, um, which I think I think before the season, the talk, the thinking was like, you know, maybe Kemba will start or maybe Rose. I know they quashed that fairly early, but like when the move was made, it wasn't unreasonable to think like, oh, if Rose started, you know, Kemba could be a spark off the bench. So either way, those guys haven't been a part of what you've been doing off the bench. Noel hasn't been a factor basically all season off of the bench. Grimes and Sims and McBride, looking at the season as a whole, have not been given a lot of opportunity. Like, taken as a whole, it's not like even... The Grimes first... is the only one, really. And even he, I mean, the first, what was it, the first couple, two months? Yeah. Um, first two months, he wasn't a factor at all. So. I would say, you know, looking at the Knicks and looking at their bench and looking at the reality, it's a good bench. I think the quality of the bench is more of an indictment of the lack of quality in the starting five that they've built. Um, like, not to, and again, the bench, last year the bench was great. Last year the bench was, I think, one of their strengths. Um, but this season, it's it's really good. But I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a that they're they're picking on, you know, scrubs. They've done it to other team starters also. And and when you look at, I was just um, some piece I wrote the other day. I was I was looking at at lineups. Um, the the one constant throughout the Nick lineups this year is that there is um there are certain archetypes that are more found are more commonly found in their successful lineups than the ones that have not been successful and like the vast number of Nick, you, you would expect this when you're what, 30, 42, 32, 30 and 42, 30 and 42. No, thank you. Um, you would expect obviously when you're 30 and 42, that the majority of your lineup data will be negative, which it is. But what's interesting was looking at um, starting with two man data and then three and going up that all of the successful Nick lineups are, the same kind of archetype, which is either it's usually two combo guards together. So um, it could be Burks and quickly. Um, there was some nice, you know, um, numbers from Rose when he played also. Um, and then quickly the and McBride one, or what's that quickly and McBride or no quickly and Burks. I'm thinking of Burks as like, yeah, I mean, McBride in much fewer minutes um, also had like some nice numbers, but um, we were talking about this kind of a little bit before the, the, the idea of like the mythical point guard and like that will solve the Knicks problems. It's not like the Knicks haven't been like good this year in the limited time that they had, you know, a traditional point guard like Kemba playing or Rose playing. The Knicks have been at their best 
I mean, again, it's how you want to define quickly, but maybe this is a defense of quickly's. Uh, maybe this is the problem. Maybe I'm not thinking of quickly appropriately. Almost all their best lineups are quickly and Burks or like quickly and McBride, I think have good numbers too. Rose had good numbers with people. And then when you get to the three and four man like data, adding um, basically any big except Randall um, this year, they have been successful with Obi. They've been successful with Taj, um, with Mitch. Like it's, it's really, so I just think it's interesting that, um, We were going to talk about him later, but Jalen Brunson um, is a name that is co- very commonly brought up as the big Nick target this offseason. And, and there's always, there's always rumors that he wants New York. He's excited to try to come to New York and they can make the numbers work. I am on the one hand, like is Jalen Brunson a better guard in isolation than many of the Nick players? He, I guess he probably is because None of them are putting up the numbers that he's putting up, but I really have no excitement or, or I don't, I'm not going to, I don't care right now about Jalen Brunson at all because I feel like the Knicks have veteran and young guards who can do enough of kind of a little bit of this and a little bit of that, that I, I don't see Jalen Brunson as a, as a, like a sea change in the Nick backcourt. Do you? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> Jalen Brunson is an interesting beast. Um, so what I'll say, and I am, I have made. So I'll start with something that's a little bit of counterpoint, not because I necessarily disagree with you, but because I think it's an interesting counterpoint. Um, Jalen Brunson last year saw shot seventy nine point nine percent within three feet of the rim which I believe is better than Mitchell Robinson did. That's, yeah, that's really crazy. <laughs> and then if you watch Jalen Brunson play, he don't take the same kind of shots that Mitchell Robinson does near the rim. <laughs> nice. um, or even close. Um, he is an elite finisher. Let's let's not understate that. Um, okay. This guy gets to the rim and is great at finishing the rim. And I'm not talking about great like... Um, like Russell Westbrook is uh, 10 times the athlete Jalen Brunson is, doesn't do that. That's important. Um, and, and it's tough because, man, when you look at the point guard situation for the Knicks, it's really tough to, I have argued with this in, on Knicks Twitter and with Prez and Schwinn and you and everybody else for years. And I don't think there's an answer. Um, it is the uh, it is the Adam Smith invisible hand of our time. The one, well, maybe some people, maybe that's not the best example because I think that a lot of people are going to have more stronger opinions on that. But it's tough to come down on this. But RJ Barrett can get to the rim whenever he wants, but he can't finish there whenever he wants. Right. We've seen that the last two games. And that's not to say RJ Barrett isn't good. Right now, at age 21, the last two games, he's been asked to fill a role that he probably isn't quite ready for. He's actually performed admirably relative to what I would expect of him, um, you know, to, in that role so far. But 
But Jalen Brunson brings that to your offense. On the other hand, um, Emmanuel Quickly, here's the thing. Emmanuel Quickly has been a very interesting case this year because he shot horribly over the first, until now, really, let's say, <laughs> until the last 20 games. He shot horribly. Um, but it wasn't from his pull-up shooting. I think the thing that people want to pick on is like he takes these step backs and all that. But that was the same as last year where he finished as a 40% three-point shooter. He shot the same rate on those. The problem was on step backs, or sorry, on spot-ups, on spot-up shots, Mayo quickly shot 46% last year. He's about at 33 right now, right? So on wide-open shots that others are creating for him, he just wasn't hitting them. Um, I think part of that is randomness, and part of that is probably some mechanical adjustments that he needs to make that he it seems like he's made over the last month. But if you were to believe that he was something like the shooter he was last year, then, I mean, a 39% shooter, that's pretty good. And then if you take into account that, like, like last year, everything we heard about quickly not being a point guard was he's just a shooter. And this year, for the first until now, until the last 20 games, he was a bad shooter, and yet the Knicks kept having positive net ratings with him on the floor. They kept being better. And I don't think it was enough to just excuse it with the bench because his assist rate went up. His, um, his, despite the fact that the foul calls, like, you know, they, they made the foul rule changes, mm-hmm. his foul rate didn't go down, and now it's the same as last year. He's still drawing fouls. And slowly, he's now he's getting more shots at the rim than he was last year, right? He's not he's not a guy that's gonna yam on anyone, but we knew he could get to the paint. Now he's turning those into layups. He has done everything else besides shoot better that you'd want, and like so. Then it comes down to: Do you think that he's he can't shoot, or do you think that this is a shooter who is now learning how to play everything else better? And if that's the path he's taking, that's what gives me pause because I'm like, do I really want to pay Jalen Brunson $20 million a year? But like this guy's taking like the leap from 21 to 22 is a big deal. And even if you don't buy any of that, look at his strengths versus RJ Barrett's strengths. And they're like a perfect fit. RJ Barrett is good at getting to the rim, right? He's RJ Barrett is a good pass. They're both good passers, right? But RJ Barrett is a good passer. And R.J. Barrett is good at defending, even on defense, R.J. Barrett is good at defending big wings and quickly is better at being a help defender who can also guard quicker guards. Mm-hmm. They, they, their strengths and weaknesses complement each other perfectly. And I'm like, do I really want to spend $20 million or do I want to like see if these two can grow together because they seem to complement each other so well? I like um, quickly in the same sense that I like RJ in that I think they are, they just make things happen. I don't know if the numbers always do them justice. I think they're the kind of guys that the more they're out there, generally the better the team seems to do. Um, I I suppose the argument, I'm not excited by Brunson. I, the argument that I could see for, you know, if he's interested, maybe you want to go for it, is... In addition to, you're right, I mean, he's a tremendous finisher. He's a, a good three-point shooter. Um, he does not turn the ball over. 
and if you add him, um, particularly let's say for like twenty million a year, then in the next couple of seasons, now you have in Quickly and Brunson pieces that would appeal to other teams if if you're looking to make a trade at some point for a bigger kind of a star. Um, so just in terms of deepening your appealing base. Um, that's a nice, you know, Brunson would have enough salary to be, you know, a helpful part of a big trade or quickly as a young, still inexpensive player. Um, that's the only reason. I, 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 I don't know, I can't say anything declaratively yet, but I definitely am not, I'm not interested in the conversation about Brunson right now because I'm not really, I don't know, I'm just not interested that much in him. Um, something I am interested in that you and I were talking about a little bit before we left the Believe Green Room and came on the air. This growing... Sorry, sorry. I gotta, I gotta ask. Yeah. Would you be okay with not making any moves? So, A, would you be okay with not making any moves and rolling into the next season with the guards that the Knicks have? And B, would you be okay with moving into the next season with the guards the Knicks have and trading Derek Rose and bringing Rokas Yogobitis. So that means quickly starting a Rokas Yogobitis sighting, but your main, your only point guards are quickly Yogobitis and McBride. I'm fine with that. I would roll with that. Um, over I Brunson? I, I, I would. Over yeah. Brunson? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what my answer would be, but I think that is an interesting question. So oh, I want you. Oh, okay. Okay. So would I rather sign Brunson or would I rather go with everybody? Those three guys. Yokubitis yeah. instead of Rose. Because Yokubitis isn't coming for at least a year, probably two. And it's probably less likely if he if we sign Brunson. Right, right. Um, no, I would rather. Let me just confirm this with myself. I would, oh God, quickly, you buy this and McBride. Yeah, I would rather go with the uh, with the young guys than with Brunson. So that's a good. Uh... And if and if it meant trading Rose, and Yokobai is coming over, I would do that too. Um, so if it's a choice between keeping Rose and trading Yokobaitis, you would trade Rose, because I'm there too. But I, you know, like would, would I rather? Play Yokobitis or play Rose? Well, because the thing is, Yokobitis himself has said that he doesn't want to come here and right. do what Deuce has done. He doesn't want to do be Deuce McBride. Right. I don't think Deuce McBride, given what he's shown, I mean, he went three from three from three tonight, barely gets the ball in his hands, but like when he does, like you can see the guy can shoot, can pass. Confident. Um, he still doesn't know how to use his body the way he should because man, that guy is a fucking load. But once he does, like, but yeah, even without that, like, the guy can play on offense and he's fit into his role. I understand Yokobitis not wanting to be that, but um, would you rather keep Rose another year or would you rather eliminate that roadblock from Yokobitis? And to be honest, Deuce, right? Who knows how long Deuce is going to put up with that? He might ask yeah. for a trade too, so. I would rather move on from Rose. Yeah. It sucks to say because he helps us so much, right? He does. But I, I think 
um, there has to be a serious recalculation of what framework is this team working within. And uh, last year they came out of the season thinking of themselves, obviously, as a team on the rise, and we got to the playoffs and saw some weaknesses, and we'll address that with some moves, and we'll roll again, and that's not where they are now. I think they can see this season more realistically, like, here's the path that, here's the hand you're being dealt. The hand you're being dealt is Randall's back to reality and probably will be this Randall going forward and not the guy you had a year ago. Um, But also, you have a Barrett that continues to grow and improve and looks, to me, ready, not now, but maybe sooner than, certainly sooner than I thought a year ago. I thought a year ago, RJ took big strides, obviously. I thought this year he has also. Um, and the strides he's made this year. Like last year, I thought RJ has shown that like he can be a good player. Now I think like RJ can be an all-star. Like I think he's on that trajectory. So I think it's I think it's, that's what the Knicks have to work from within. Rather than working from the premise of, okay... <laughs> we have our star in Randall and how do we maximize like around that? Like, no, I, I think it's, you know, what does this team need and what does RJ need to, to be more balanced, I think, than they were this season. Yeah. With RJ, I, I mean, I, with RJ, I think it's a lot more clear to see than it was previously. Um, I'm actually, he, I think there's room to, for him to improve as a finisher at the rim. Mm-hmm. But it comes down to if he's like, as much as Greg Anthony annoyed the shit out of me last night, um, there are a few things he said that were interesting. And one was uh, not interesting, like correct. RJ Barrett with a pull-up jumper. If you can't go under screens against RJ Barrett, you're dead. Because even when teams do, a lot of times he still gets to the rim. If he can hit that pull-up jumper, um, that's when you're talking about the kind of ceiling that you have from guys like Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown versus, you know, something like, you know, Rudy Gay or something like, you know, a decent, a very good ancillary scorer, uh, which is, uh, by the way, would still be a great find for the next third pick. Yeah. not even considering how the Knicks have drafted previously, but you know, it, that's a different ceiling. And I know that a lot of Knicks Twitter would have a problem with that, but even that I'm fine with like, you know, just RJ Barrett being a good third scorer on a national, on a national championship team. Yeah. I should call it a national championship. Sure. Team, right? uh, you know, we're all, we're all very progressive here. So, but an NBA championship team, a third scorer versus a, you know, the guy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think I, my expect, I don't want to say expectation because that seems like I'm setting it low. My expect, I don't know what I, my expectation from RJ is. I think I'm too scared to have an expectation from someone who we picked third. And if we pick Jaden Ivey or Chet Holmgren this year, my opinion will probably be the same. <laughs> But if he's if he is an ancillary scorer on a championship team, that's enough for me. Who also plays good defense and tries his ass off, that's enough for me. 
the pull-up jumper is what makes the difference between that and okay, that's the guy, you know. Speaking of the guy, there's been a lot of chatter recently with this kind of old west showdown idea that this town is not big enough for Tom Thibodeau and Julius Randle after this season. Somebody's got to go. Um, does somebody got to go? I go back and forth on this. And lately it's been both. Here's the thing. I For a while I was on the opinion that Julius is not the problem. It's Tibbs slowing him down. Because Julius started playing with pace and playing with and setting screens, real screens and rolling and making quick decisions, not holding the ball. But he did that for two weeks. And then the last few games, it's been like, okay, I had enough. <laughs> right. Um, and at that point, it's like, well, here's like, if you're an offensive player, if you're an offensive player that doesn't add any value on defense, you have to be great on offense. Because even the best offensive players in the NBA add Jokic. Jokic is a good example. Jokic is a very underrated defender. Right? He's always in the right spot and he's seven feet tall. You know, he is basically I'm not gonna say he's as good as Marcus Gasol was his defensive player of the year season, but he, he's about as good as Marcus Gasol was overall in his career. And he's a much better offensive player. Like Jokic is a historically good offensive player. He's seven foot Larry Bird. That's what I will call him right now. Nice. And um, and I know a lot of old heads will kill me on that. And that might be warranted because I know Larry Bird was the truth. Um, but that's Jokic is that good. Um, you cannot, Kevin Durant, when he's asked to, can provide a weak side helper. Even. Even you saw last night, Trey Young is a liability on defense, right? But like every time the Knicks mismatched him, he found a way to get his hand on a ball or to try. And sometimes you, he just gets overpowered. But none of those guys are complete liabilities. And to Randall's credit, he has some strengths on defense. He can switch a little bit. Uh, when he tries, he's good. But he's he just doesn't does do that consistently. And then when you add onto that that he's not that good on offense, it's tough. On the other hand, if you look at the the way this... The the biggest thing is the way this roster is built. Let me ask you this, Matt. What what are the most fun... If you could pick one lineup that's been the most fun for you to watch, what would it be from this Knicks team? It would be... um, Quickly... That you've actually seen, not just the hypothetical one. Um, okay. I like it when, um, like, bench plus RJ. Um, I've liked RJ. Lineups that have had RJ at four. Um, I've liked a lot. When the, yeah. when, when the, the brief times when Randall played five, and Barra played four. I, I found that very intriguing. Yeah, I, I, I would have to agree. I'm not sure 
how much it needs to be Randall to five. But I think whenever yeah. I've had, whenever I've seen quickly Deuce, Grimes, and Barrett together, and out of the quickly Deuce Grimes combo, you could probably substitute Cam for one of those two, by the way, because he's fun in those lineups too. Mm-hmm. And the things that he doesn't provide gets covered up. He's not the most uh, like those quickly Grimes RJ are all on a line, right? They're very highly intuitive defenders. Cam is still catching up on that end, but he has a length to make up for it, right? But those guys. Because when those guys play one through four, and to your point, maybe maybe Randall is even better than than Sims or, or Mitch. But you have quickly Deuce Grimes, especially, and RJ on top of that, or Cam on top of that. You just have a ton of length. And you have guys that top lock, right? So the Knicks don't have to worry about back cuts and they don't have to worry about guys catching and shooting. Like that Atlanta game was such a good like when when quickly Deuce and Grimes were in there together, Atlanta wasn't getting these just like open threes, right? Those guys were top locking them. I think quickly got back cut ones, which was the biggest shock because that dude never get like he doesn't fall asleep on defense. He's a fucking machine. But um, besides that, they just been they're they're always doing that, and and then they're and because they get those stops, they get the ball not out of the net but they get them on rebounds and because they're all young and quick they push the ball and 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 i I just mentioned we we couldn't even fit it we we with all the names both of us mentioned we couldn't fit all of them into one lineup Mm -hmm. which tells us that we have a lot of those guys who can fit in those kind of lineups but when they get the rebound they push they get in the offense quickly and then they don't have a quote-unquote true point guard, but they move the ball. They move without the ball. Sometimes it don't work out, but a lot of times the defense makes a mistake and they get open threes or layups. And that's how it seems like the roster is built. And that also seems like the exact opposite of how Tom Thibodeau wants to play. And how much do you think that is a tension that matters? A tension? Yeah, because like you know, the young guys and like the the bulk of the roster in terms of numbers seems to be built for playing up tempo, switching and not not just up tempo, but switching a lot on defense as opposed to you know Thibodeau's kind of conservative scheme, right. being aggressive, um, you know, definitely relying on rim protection, but not you know not maybe what he's favored, which is just icing and funneling, right? How much do you think the fact that these young guys play or seem to be, are they built for a different scheme on offense and defense than what Tibbs wants, which may be slow it down on offense, Chris Paul type point guard, ISO, and then on defense funnel to rim protectors. Like how much does that dichotomy matter? I think that hmm. I know this doesn't make for like like scintillating radio, but like I'm actually very deeply like thinking about this question. 
Um, this is the part where we should have an ad ready for you guys, but <laughs> we are not capitalist I'm pigs. I'm staring at my. I I'm not. Matt might be. So. Yeah, I, I will be for the. I'm gonna hawk my my dog's medication. This. <laughs> Intellectual break brought to you by Clindamycin. Clindamycin, get your dog's mouth unstank. Matt, um, if you've ever followed Matt or read his articles on Jacobin, is very much a capitalist pick. So. <laughs> That's actually what they called me in high school. Um, I think acknowledging, you know, I'm just a lowly podcaster. I think that. Thibodeau has never encountered what he has in this team. I think in Thibodeau's history, I think he has probably mostly um, coached teams that had high-end talent, um, high-end offensive talent, and veterans, um, mostly. I would have to look at numbers. Um, cause I know when he was in Chicago and Minnesota, they had a lot of good young players, but I just feel like, I don't, I think the lack of just happening to have Derek Rose or Carl Anthony Towns or Jimmy Butler or last year, he had that in Randall. I, I think Thibodeau, I think the big story to me this season is that Thibodeau was put in a position where you could see like, okay there is a limit to what what you've done can do. And unless things break in that way for you, i.e. unless someone just happens to have like an all-NBA season, then you don't have enough ready to – there's no plan B that you have that's going to cover for that. And that's something I think Thibodeau – I think Thibodeau – I think Thibodeau has more questions to answer this offseason than the bench does than the young players do. I think that the young players who were on the Knicks last season have all shown, like, they're not complacent. Um, and, and maybe that's a credit to this um, administration under Leon Rose because the Knicks had a stretch for a while um, going back into the, the late 2000s um, where they would draft players who would do well their first year and then basically stagnate. And the Knicks now for a while, you know, the guys they had last year, Quickly and Toppin, both to me better, more well-rounded players this year. The young players this season, as the year's gone on, I think Grimes has shown more. Um, it's really hard to, to make a comment about McBride because I think his opportunities have been so limited. But Sims, I think the more we have seen of Sims, the more we have seen to like of Sims. So... I don't think that those guys – I don't question them. I'm not worried next year about are they going to come in having cared enough. I think they will. To me, the big question is what does Thibodeau take out of this season that he has to he has to work on? Uh, we always talk so much about players, especially on a young team like this, especially a young team that has a coach that, you know, as of a year ago, I think we were all like, okay, I don't, don't got to worry about that. Check that box. And I'm not saying that now Tom Thibodeau's quality is in question, but I don't think he's ever had a year like this. And the game is always changing. And where Thibodeau earned his bones was not the same style of play as it is now. I think he can still be successful, but 
you know, every great coach that's been around long enough, Pat Riley, Popovich, really other than Phil Jackson, um, they all evolve. They all change. So this is Thibodeau's opportunity to do that. I think that's the biggest question for next year is, other than the lottery, um, what's, what's up with the coach? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because um, the Tibbs, um, he, he was a guy. I remember a while ago when I was young and naive, I posted something on Facebook. This was at the top of Greg Popovich's prime, where I said, Tom Thibodeau is the best coach in basketball. And I think um, Rose and Duke Dang, at the peak of their you know power, had been injured and uh, Noah, yes. Noah was their point forward, and Noah became a close to an MVP candidate. And Tibbs did a great job. And I, and then someone was like, "No, Greg Popovich is the best coach in basketball." And I think at this point, I, I would say that twenty-two, twenty-three year old me, amongst the midst of other reasons to. Amongst a, a bunch of other evidence to believe that was the case was not the sharpest tool in the shed. But um, um, I guess the question is, do you think Tibbs can adjust? And because the question would be, then I mean, it's it's very it's things like this, right? Last year he started Alfred Payton over Emmanuel Quickly. Emmanuel Quickly was not a good defensive player last year though he showed signs and he grew over the year. Emmanuel quickly was not the passer he is right now. I still think Emmanuel quickly should have been the starting point guard, but it's fine, right? But this year he started Alec Burks, who is a worse passer. I would say a worse defender. And Matt, if you disagree, definitely feel free to disagree. Uh, But I think that's, I would, would the Hawks game was the best example of this of what i want to see was i think if burks was on bogdan bogdanovich who torched evan fournier and later on rj barrett i think burks would have great on him and trey young who torched to burks i think quickly would have been great on him or better on him right and then you could have put mcbride in you could have done those things right yeah. um to what extent but if if that's the thing. Everyone is like Tibbs. If you give him a real point guard, you give him a real closer. If you give him some talent, he'll be good. And I'm saying, but if he can't make these basic adjustments now, like it's not like the need for coaching goes away when you have talent, right? right? Like changes. If you say that these are small marginal adjustments that don't make, make a difference in the Knicks overall outlook, we're not, we're not beating Joel Embiid. We're not beating, you know, um, Giannis, we're not beating the Nets, we're not beating all these teams, fine. But if we were ever to be on that talent level, small adjustments are what make the difference, right? I, like, the Suns and the Bucks last year, the Bucks had the best player, they had Giannis, and yet the Suns had CP3 and Booker. Like, in terms of overall talent, it wasn't a huge mismatch. But the Bucks were able to tilt it to their favor do you think that the Knicks have, like, is Tibbs the kind of coach that gives you the confidence where he could make those kind of adjustments? 
and that's where I struggle. I, I, I don't think you can just throw away the fact that he doesn't have talent here. I think um, so. It's, it's interesting that you bring up the Bucks because Mike Budenholzer until last season, um, particularly coach. That's true, and he had. I, I saw. I'll say this: Mike Budenholzer had the opposite critique as Tibbs. He played Giannis thirty minutes a game in the playoffs when it's like, yes, that dude should barely be sitting, right? Yes. And, but he learned from it. He did learn from it. So that's a, it. that is something worth in this measure. And I think. Um, so I think it's certainly possible. And I think with Thibodeau also um, what might work in favor of Thibodeau evolving is that he's such a basketball lifer. And this, if this, you know, if, if next year he tries this again and the Knicks go 32 and 50 and he's fired, there's no guarantee he gets another job. It didn't end well in Minnesota. Um, He would have a one flash in the pan season since then. He would look like a guy who can't. The problem with him in part coming out of Minnesota, in addition to we're doing too many jobs at once, was like, can he, can he do it now? Because Tom Thibodeau earned his, his mystique many years ago in a very different league in terms of how people were playing. He's got to show he can do it. I think he can do it. And I think he will do it because I think, this is his life. Like, he loves this. He loves it so much. I don't but think. But he's Tom never Thibodeau... changed in you know all these years of being a coach. Really? <coughs> he's never changed all of these years being a coach. He never has. But I wonder if, like, okay, he has all this success in Chicago. When he when he's fired, basically, it's controversial. It's not like the Bulls fired Tom Thibodeau and the fans were like, yeah, he had to go. Like people were pissed. So he's he's a high on his horse at that point. He goes to Minnesota. It does, has you know very one very good season by their standards, and then they're out of it, and it doesn't end well. But he still has capital because I think Minnesota as an organization didn't come out of that looking good, and Minnesota as an organization has no reputation for successors stability anyway. So even though that ended, you mean the team horrible, that was forced to trade Kevin Garnett generational what's, player what's this do you mean the team that couldn't get kevin garnett out of the first round and had to trade him that team you think they're a bad organization matt i don't know in their defense they did get to the conference finals once um, with with kevin garnett one of the top 30 players of all time yes <laughs> that was the best they ever did <laughs> i'm not defending them at all um at all but but saying like i i think to, to Thibodeau's case when that fell apart in Minnesota, it wasn't a rookie head coach where things just fell apart. And okay, that guy like has no rep left now. Like Thibodeau still had some capital. And I think because of his history in the past with the Knicks and his history with Leon Rose specifically, like he had more of an in in this place than he would have if it was Phil Jackson running the show, for example. So now I think... This is all obviously imagination, but I'm just trying to I'm trying to envision a circumstance in which Tom Thibodeau will feel um, catalyzed to change. And the the universe where I can see it, that's very much like our own, is the one where if he loses, if he's fired after another bad season, he's not younger, um, maybe he never gets that job again. And I I can't think of anything in his life from what you hear about him. And just watching the way he behaves, like I think he 
can't live any other way. I, I think, I don't know, man, maybe I mean to to whatever about this, but I think he's going to change because he wants to be the best coach because he wants to be the best coach because he doesn't want to do anything else. But maybe that's just hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what his definition of best coach is. Right, um, right. I mean, I think there's been a, a bunch of fascinating com- conversations on Nick Twitter's on Nick Twitter, just NBA Twitter, that boil down to how much should we wait the last five minutes of an N- of an NBA playoff game versus everything else, right? So, um, is Emmanuel quickly a starting point guard? Is a different question in the last five minutes versus everything else. And if you believe the answer is no to Emmanuel quickly being a, a starting point guard in the last five minutes then you're like, what is the point of talking about anything else for some people? And for other people, it's like, you know, it's a different question. Um, with with Tibbs, what's the most frustrating thing to me, it's like a lot of people are like, this is just how we've been all season. And it's like, and watch every Knicks game for the first three, three and a half quarters. And they are good. Yep. Like they pushed, like especially of late, they push the ball. Even Randall, right? They push the ball. They get into sets. After timeouts, Tibbs had a couple today that were like, yeah. and maybe this is me searching right, to, right, for right. reasons to like Tom Thibodeau, but they had some really good ones. They had one against the Hawks that like, they used Quigley's gravity to get Mitchell Robinson in a wide-open dunk. right? Like That's as good as you can get. Um I think the guy knows basketball. That's what makes it different. Like you want you want to believe if you're a Tibbs hater that this is just some idiot, you know, curmudgeon, you know, uh, cheerleader coach or not even cheerleader, but like a, a motivator, quote unquote. Like we, yeah. there's this dichotomy between cheerleader coaches and X's and O's guys. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think it's also applied to I happen to pay a lot more attention to Michigan basketball than others, but it's applied to Juwan Howard, and there's certainly a racial component there. But he's been labeled as this cheerleader coach who doesn't know X's and O's. Right. I think that the cat, and I think that if you watch the way Michigan play. Sorry, your classic X's and O's coach would be like a David Fisdale type. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) But if you watch Juwan Howard, that's obviously not the case. And I think if you watch... Tom Thibodeau for three quarters a game. That's also not the case. I think the guy knows X's and O's. Yeah. I think they run they run a lot of cool shit. And then at the end of the game, he's just like, "No, we're not gonna we're not gonna disguise it at all. We're not gonna do anything interesting." Like like it's not that it's not that you can't run ISO in the fourth, but when as soon as you dr- when you walk the ball up the court, and as soon as you get across the court, you're like telegraphing what that's what we're going to do that's where the problems start right whereas like um and this has been the most frustrating exchange with me for with the rest of nick's twitter is like they're like i'm like the knicks fall apart down the stretch and i'm they're like well the knicks don't have a closer i'm like well if you look at other teams with a closer they run different sets right if you look at the suns or the bucks they're not just telegraphing that we want Giannis or Booker to get the ball. And they're like, well, they have a point guard, so that's why they can run sets. I was like, but so you're saying that, but the Suns did that against us, 
with Cam Payne. Is, Cameron Payne is a good point guard. I don't think he's infinitely better than Emmanuel Quickly. I don't think the right. sets they're running are out of Emmanuel Quickly or even Alec Burks' capability. But they they will stick to, we need a point guard. And it's just like, really? That's what you're going with? That like, if we just had campaign, all of our problems would be solved? Like, yeah, that's what that's what gets me. And it's like, can you get Tibbs to... And I, so to your point, I think the way to get... I think that the best answer, if they were going to make it work with Tibbs, it would be leaning into trading the vets. And he has no choice but to play the youth. And when he's had to play the youth... He has played RJ at the four. He has given Deuce minutes. I think I think secretly deep down he loves Deuce McBride, but he is hesitant to give a rookie minutes um, because I, he left Deuce in today. And and like for those who who don't think Deuce can play offense, three for three from three today, no hesitation. And Deuce is not Frank. And I love Frank Nelikina. Deuce not is Frank. not Frank Nelikina. He is a very confident offensive player. Who right now is trying to fit into a role next to quickly next to RJ and not try to take away from them, but the guy can play on ball. He is a confident, aggressive player, and he's got twenty more pounds of muscle. Like that guy at full full realization looks like a linebacker or a defensive end. He's not gonna be one ninety five his whole career. That is a that is a football player. And um, you know, I, I think that I I, I that's but it it takes time with Tibbs. And I don't know if the Knicks have that much time with a lot of these things while he continues to while away games with Fournier and Burks together, right? I mean, e- even, like, I like... They're both good players. That's that's what's shitty about this. I don't want shit on Alec Burks. He's a good player. The, the Knicks got Alec Burks with $10 million. Like, people compared him to El- Aaron Aflalo. I would way rather have... Alec Burks There's and Aaron no Apollo. He and he's not Alec. Alec Burks isn't a selfish player, right? Nope. He is better when he can be wired to score, but he only comes across a certain way when he's the point guard, mm-hmm. and like that's just not his role. Like he doesn't have great handle, um, but he's good when you get him off the side and you let him run a simple pick and roll and shoot, or you let him you know just try to get a foul. Evan Fournier is good, you know, at certain things too, but um. But it's just about mixing and matching and putting these guys in the best. And that's that's partly why I don't blame the front office as much for last season. Um, you know, like I did the the pot the, the broadcast yesterday was a little bit interesting because it was a mixed bag. I think I'll say both a good thing that I agreed with that Greg Anthony said and kind of not a good thing. So the good thing that Greg Anthony said was he was talking about the Knicks, and like you can tell they're wired to like defend Tom Thibodeau. Mm-hmm. But what he said was, when you have Randall and you have RJ, you don't need a ball dominant point guard, right? Right? You don't necessarily need a traditional point guard. I would have loved to for them to add onto that that like that's why Emmanuel quickly is probably the best guard, right. but they didn't go that far. They didn't. They actually barely mentioned quickly, and they kept talking about how like Burks was extremely important. Whatever. But the other part was they were like, well, the Knicks front office plan was to go all in on Fournier and Kemba Walker. And I was like, all in, <laughs> you know, like they give Kemba Walker $8 million a year. I'm you know, it was, it was a, a, it was a lottery ticket and it didn't work out. Yeah. They give Fournier a sizable contract, 
but less less than a fifth of their salary, right? So if it's an above average starter, you would give them twenty million. They didn't give them that. That's three years, right? And it's and it's for a guy who just set the record for threes in a season. Like he hasn't been bad, so I can't kill the front office, right? I can, but the, what I can criticize is how these acquisitions and a bunch of young players. Who, I I don't think any young player on the Knicks has not improved with the exception of maybe Mitch. And even him, I think that's been, he's been good. So I can't really like my argument would be, he just hasn't improved, which is a different story, but I can't argue that Tibbs has really been dealt that bad a hand this year. No, no, there have been a lot of things that have happened, but that is not one of them. Um, we will undoubtedly talk to you about more of those things again in our next episode. That's going to be it for episode 20. On Friday, the Knicks are in Miami. And then they will continue the road trip Sunday in Detroit. We will be back sometime around then. So take care until then, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.